0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. And So Mark is going to read to you from Galatians chapter 4 this morning. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Thank you. You know, in Greek mythology, you find two key characters that represent the two different Greek words for time. And the two characters are as different from one another as the two Greek words are. It's, it's Kronos and Kairos. And Kronos, in Greek mythology, he's known as Father Time. He's an old man, or often depicted that way at least, with a sickle in hand holding an hourglass. He's a descendant of the primordial god of chaos. The idea is that he was thought of in, very neg- in a very negative sense, that he was disliked and thought of as evil himself. And in Greek mythology, this guy Kronos, one of the Greek words for time, he tells the story of father time devouring his own family only to be tricked by his wife to regurgitate them. And as soon as he did, his family turned on him, gathering others around him to turn on him and lock him away forever to be freed from the terrible wrath and reign of father time. You see, Kronos is from where we get our English word Greek to Latin to English chronological. It's the moment-by-moment passing of time, an evil tyranny that you and I live under, that all of us would like to be freed from. He's really the predecessor to the Grim Reaper, someone or everyone's worst enemy. So that's Kronos. But then in Greek mythology, there was also Kairos. Kairos was the youngest divine son of Zeus. He was the god of opportunity, depicted often as a youth, having wings on his shoes because he moved so swiftly, having only one long lock of hair that came down from his forehead, significant because it showed you that the moments of time, Kairos, that he could be never grasped from behind, you had to catch him as he came because time is always passing us by. Cairo speaks not of time sequentially, or n- nor even in, in matters of qual- uh, quantity, like, like the other Greek word of chronos does. But no, Cairo speaks of time in the idea of quality. There are few moments in human history that we would refer to as kairos, as significant opportunities that have to be grabbed before they pass you by. It's speaking of climactic moments in times of opportunity and significance that will pass you by if you fail to grab it just in the right moment. Kairos are those important moments that define us, that shape us, that make us as people. Now, here's what's interesting. The authors of the New Testament will use both of those words to describe the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Both of those Greek words and images, they will apply to what Jesus arrived here to do. In fact, in Galatians 4, what was just read to you, But the fullness, when the fullness of time had come, God would send forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, the word fullness, it's a nautical term. It means when a ship was fully manned and stocked and ready for a long journey. The idea is is like sands in an hourglass, when the time, this is Kronos, when father time, Remember, chronological, when the moment-by-moment passing of time, at the fullness of time, it's saying that God waited for a strategic moment in human history, like sands in the hourglass of father time, every moment in human history would lead to, point to, and culminate, it would climax in the arrival of Jesus. That's how they viewed Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But what about that other word, kairos? Well, it's found in the gospel of Mark in chapter one, where it talks about Jesus beginning his earthly ministry. And Jesus himself says it about him where he stands up and says, the time the kairos is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This was not the chronological passing of time. No, this was the chronos, Jesus said. This is the particular moment of time that's so significant that it will redefine everything that came before it and it will forever define everything that comes after it. Really, in English, we have a pair of words that are comparable to these two Greek words. The the two English words that are comparable to them are the words historical and historic. Because everything that happens in human history is historical, but we reserve the word historic for events that shape and reshape life as we know it. We rarely use the word. We'd we'd use it to speak of the fall of Rome in ancient history, or Gutenberg's invention of the printing press, or the Padre's trade for Juan Soto at the middle of last season, things that shift life as we know it. There's only one time in all of the Bible where heaven itself says, and this is that kind of moment, a historic, life-altering, history-shaking moment in time. And it's when Mark begins to teach us, he begins to reveal to us in his gospel, Jesus' identity and purpose as being, according to Jesus, the most historic time in history. What I'm trying to tell you is very simple. It's that your Bible teaches you that the greatest moment in history is Jesus' arrival, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. They are historic, world-shaping, world-changing events. The most, in fact, world-shaping events in all of human history. You see, the cross and an empty tomb are not only the centerpiece of the Christian message, I believe that they're the centerpiece of really the whole human experience and all of human history. Even today, our modern world accounts for time based on the life and the death of Jesus when you think about it. You see, Jesus is the culmination of what humanity has longed for and anticipated since shortly after humanity breathed their first breath. It was from the Garden of Eden itself where the promise of heaven was given, a promise of a deliverer. That God himself would come to rescue us from sin and Satan's tyranny. A promise that he himself would suffer for us as a substitute. A promise that the prophets foretold would include him rising from the dead. Something that we just read as we worshiped together from John's gospel that it says that the disciples didn't even completely understand. That they weren't really waiting for Jesus to rise from the dead. But if you were here at the beginning of our gathering, we read from Isaiah 53, where the prophet foretold that the suffering servant would come, and when he came and, yes, suffered, he would later divide his spoil, that he would see his offspring, the new life that he brought about from the cross, that he would be satisfied when his sacrifice has brought righteousness to many, the prophet said. And all of that would happen after the servant had died. After he had been put to death. And since dead men cannot receive or or see or share in the fruits of their labor, the prophet is promising that God's promised deliverer would not just die, but that he would rise from the dead. And it's not just Isaiah the prophet who would paint this portrait or give us this imagery, you'd find it throughout the Old Testament. It's even found in the Psalms, in Psalm 16, verse 10, where David is praying in an expression of trust in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And that expression of trust climaxes in him saying, for you will not abandon my own soul in Sheol. You won't abandon my own soul, he's saying, in the grave. You won't leave it in darkness. But then he says, or let your Holy One, separate from himself, see corruption that you won't allow his body to see decay or to decompose. It's Psalm 22, which is famously known as describing the crucifixion of God's promised deliverer some thousand years beforehand. But it also describes and promises is that that deliverer would rise from the dead. You probably know this, but Jesus would quote from this psalm, from the cross, Because Psalm 22 begins with the statement, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is what you hear Jesus cry from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Jesus taking this psalm and applying it to himself. He's pointing out to his audience that this is speaking of me. You remember that the, the psalmist had written saying that he would be publicly displayed as a failure and openly scorned and mocked, which is what we see happen to Christ on the cross that his bones would be disjointed, and that his hands and his feet would be pierced, that his executioners would gamble over his garments. But the second half of that psalm, it's so amazing, tell us not about how he will be forsaken, but that he will be rescued from death and the grave. Where it promises in Psalm 22 that he will see the future generations that are forever changed by his death. You see, the prophets had foretold it, and even Jesus himself would prophesy about his resurrection. In Matthew 17, he would say, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised up on the third day. Remember early in John's gospel, when they questioned him, saying, what authority do you have to say these things and do these things? Give us a sign, Jesus, to prove it, to prove that you are who you claim to be. Do you remember how Jesus replied? He answered them and said in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it was taken us 46 years to build the great temple and will you raise it and rebuild it in three days? But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. Please track with me. Jesus had promised those who followed him and all those who questioned him that the proof of his true identity would be clear to all of them when he rose from the dead, not when he would reincarnate, not when the spirit of Christ would fall on someone else. No, when Christ Jesus himself would reemerge from the grave alive on the other side of death. You see, Jesus' perfect life, his sinless substitution, they were proven to us at the resurrection. I love how Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says it. It says that Jesus was shown to be. Another way it's translated is he was declared to be the son of God when... He was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, it's amazing, my friends. We, our faith is not without evidence when it comes to the resurrection. The resurrection, it's rooted in history. It's illuminated for us in scripture, and it's confirmed in experience. And my message is entitled this morning, A Time to Change All Time." A time to change all time, because that's what the world is observing and celebrating still 2,000 years later. This moment in time that changed everything, everything in the past and everything in the future as well. This is what we're celebrating today. And this is what I want to tell you this morning. It's that the resurrection has changed your past. The resurrection, it can change your present. And the resurrection, it can undoubtedly also change your future. You see, the passage we're discussing this morning is something we've recently looked at as we've been walking through the book of Galatians, which has been such a joy to do together. So we won't be looking at it ad nauseum together this morning because we've already walked through it. But here, what Paul writes to us is about what Christ accomplished when God came and dwelt among us. He's telling us, here's what it accomplished. Now, you'll recognize here, however, that that it does not specifically say what Christ did when he walked the earth. It doesn't here emphasize that, yes, he lived a sinless life and died a blameless death and then was conquering the grave by rising from the dead and proving himself alive and proving his identity. The four Gospels make those details very clear, and elsewhere in Paul's writings, he makes all three of those things incredibly clear, including stating this about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Where he said, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. You see, even if Jesus lived some sinless life, even if Jesus had died a blameless death, we would be hopeless today because all of our hope would have been buried with him in a tomb. If he didn't also emerge from the grave as a victor. But because he did do just that, because he did rise from the grave, the Apostle Paul is here reminding the churches that were scattered throughout the region of Galatia, as well as it now echoes to remind us today that those moments changed our past, that they change our present, and that they undoubtedly change our future. So first, let's just talk about the past. How does it change the past? How does the death and resurrection of Jesus change our past? Well, what he says here is, when the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4, Verse 4, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption, the adoption as sons. In verse 5, it says that what happened when Jesus accomplished these things is that he came to redeem us. The imagery is, is that of him purchasing us off of the slave block. This isn't Jesus merely saving you because he threw you a lasso or a line in the water to save you. No, it's saying that he had to purchase you to rescue you. And that what he purchased you with is made clear in what Paul, or I'm sorry, what Peter would write, where Peter would say that we were not purchased with silver or gold or any other corruptible thing, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He purchased us out of slavery. So that he might receive us, adopting us as sons. Isn't it amazing that what we celebrate is that we were purchased and rescued so that we might be adopted and made to belong again in the family of God? You see, Jesus would arrive in a manger on Christmas morning, leaving all the splendor and glory and safety of heaven with the shadow of the cross already looming over his cradle, so that the father could embrace wayward sons and daughters for all of eternity. You know it's been wisely said that the birth of Jesus brings God to man, but the cross of Jesus brings man back to God. And for the resurrection, it secures something for us, it secures forgiveness for our past. Isn't it beautiful that that's what it does? It secures forgiveness for my past. It changes my past because it offers me the secure hope of forgiveness. In fact, in Romans chapter 4, it says it this way in verse 25, he was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised for our justification. In another translation, he was raised to life to make us right with God. You see, the resurrection proves that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as our substitute, that it was acceptable to God the Father. The prophet Isaiah, as we read it earlier, he rightly said it this way in Isaiah 53, verse 5, that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. The idea is the punishment that brought us peace was taken by him and by his stripes, by his wounds we are healed. Make no mistake, Jesus bore the penalty and punishment for sin, but don't make the mistake of thinking or supposing that it was his own sin that he suffered for. It was mine. It was yours. It was ours that he took on, that he took away, and that he paid for on a cross. And the resurrection proved that we have now been justified by faith in Jesus. Please hear me. The cross, it tells us for sure that we are far worse than we'd ever imagine, yet simultaneously far more loved than we had ever hoped or dreamed, because it shows me that I'm sinful and broken enough that God had to leave heaven to bleed and die to rescue me, that I couldn't save myself, but it simultaneously shows us that we were loved enough that God was willing to bleed and die to rescue us, that he loved us enough to give himself for us. You see, the weekend that we're remembering was the pulpit that God would use to preach to the world through all the ages that he loved the world. That's what the cross and an empty tomb speak. They're like a pulpit that preaches to humanity throughout all of the ages, his great love for the world. While every other religion seems to be trying to get some distant God to notice you, look at what the God of the Bible has done. We're not trying to get some distant God to notice us. No, the cross shows us a very different story in a very different reality. The cross demonstrates that God loves us and came near to us to rescue us, to purchase us so that he could adopt us. He came so near to us that he suffered for us. I, rem- I believe that he remains so near to us that he still suffers with us. It's amazing of all the statements that jesus would make the one that rings out still is his final statement to humanity from the cross where you remember with his arms outstretched he would cry out and say it is finished and the resurrection proved it to be so didn't it it proved that the sacrifice of jesus was accepted it proves that my sin has been paid for you see jesus final statement from the cross can really become heaven's first pronouncement over you that it's finished. That all that you need to do that would be required of you to make things right between you and God, that it's finished. Jesus' final statement from the cross can become heaven's first pronouncement over you that it's done. And the resurrection proves that reality to be true. You see, the resurrection, it proves that things can change in my past that I can receive forgiveness for my past and even adoption as a son. But it also speaks of a change in the present. You see, it speaks of a secure power that's given to us, power for the present. You see, when Jesus would breathe his final breath on a cross, something dramatic would take place physically to give us a glimpse into what was taking place spiritually between mankind and God. It's when the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the very thing that would separate a holy God and his presence from an unholy, broken, sinful, rebellious man. But when that happened, when that veil was torn from top to bottom, it demonstrated that something incredibly significant just took place. It would expose for humanity to look in and see behind the curtain either the Ark of the Covenant or the place where it once laid And it would render the temple itself essentially irrelevant, but most of all, it indicated something that God was clearly speaking to humanity in that moment that echoes still through the ages, and that's that God would no longer be separated from his people. No longer separated from us. You see, this is the biggest and most significant shift that takes place experientially between those who were the followers of Yahweh in the Old Testament, and those of us who still are following him in the new. It's that God is now united with his people, with his spirit now indwelling us. And that is made possible because Jesus has died. He's, He's been buried and he's risen from the dead. The Apostle Paul would pick up on this truth and write to the ancient church in Corinth saying, do you not know that you are now the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells inside of you? I mean, my friends, I could rattle off the nerdy fun facts for why I believe the resurrection happened. Because people aren't arguing whether or not Jesus actually existed or even if he died. The argument is whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. And I could give you the reasons why I think that it's true and why you can trust it. I I can tell you all about the, the rise of Christianity in the first century in Jerusalem, the very place that Jesus had died and been buried, and how those in power couldn't squash the movement because they couldn't come up with the body. I could tell you about the massive shift that took place in the lives of first century Jews who had customs and practices that weren't just cultural connections, but they believed were the key to them finding forgiveness and a covering uh, for their sin between them and God, and yet they stopped those practices because they believed that Jesus, the Lamb of God, has risen from the dead because they saw him as firsthand eyewitnesses rise from the dead. I could tell you about the incredible persecution and death of first century followers of Jesus who testified that Jesus was alive and they saw him and refused to recant even at the point of great persecution, even at the point of death, of martyrdom. I could work through with you all of the unreasonable alternative theories for what might have happened to Jesus' body. But the thing that I think is the most powerful testimony of the fact that we have a risen, powerful Savior is on display actively today, 2,000 years later, in the lives of Jesus' people. You see, the amazing thing is that the resurrection happened not just to change my past to provide forgiveness, but to give me power in the present to live a whole new, a whole different life. You see, Jesus would tell his disciples in John 16, I tell you the truth that it is to your advantage that I leave. And he said, if I depart, I will send him the helper, the Holy Spirit to you. In Romans chapter 6, it says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. My friends, when you think about it, there are millions upon millions upon millions over century after century of people whose lives have been radically changed and transformed by the life-giving power not of a dead mentor or a dead revolutionary or a dead leader or, or some forceful, heavy set of principles. No, their lives have been transformed by a living Savior's power working from the inside out to transform them. You see, I'm one of them, but so are you. For so many of you this is your testimony that Jesus has so radically transformed your life into such a different form from what it was before because you have encountered a risen living savior and experienced his power here in the present tense. I mean how can people argue with the powerful testimony of a changed and transformed life even just seated among us here this morning. Is freedom from sin and addiction is restoration of marriages and families, is the restoration of hope and peace and purpose in people's lives who are hopeless, is a release from bitterness and unforgiveness that was so toxic in many of our hearts, and the ability to love selflessly, self sacrificially as Christ has loved us. How do you argue with the powerful testimony of a transformed life? Because that's what the resurrection does. It doesn't just change my past, but it changes my present. It doesn't just offer forgiveness, but it gives power in the moment. You see, what our text in Galatians tells me is that God, the Holy Spirit, begins his work in my life and in my heart, yes, to transform me. And a part of that transformation is for me to begin to recognize my acceptance by God and the love that he has for me as a perfect father for his beloved child. See, salvation, when you think about it, is described in the scriptures as the Father making you to belong again in the family of God through the means of the Son of God, exchanging your identity for His and the Spirit of God coming into your life to affirm it all to be so. And then to begin to transform your life to look like the life of the Son. You see, he's affirming that you are the beloved Son of God who belongs at home in the family of God. Oh, the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, it affects my past, my present, but also my future. Yes, it gives me forgiveness and power, but do you hear me? Please, it also, doesn't it give you hope? It gives me hope for the future. There's a famous poet who said that everything, or excuse me, that nothing makes sense when we think of death. That nothing makes sense when we think of death. I mean, when you think about it, if we extract Jesus from the world, from history, if we extract Jesus, what hope is there? What hope is there that, that things in this world will ever be right again? Because the narratives that time and technology and, and education are going to solve it have not solved anything, have they? In fact, as society progresses and evolves, we seem to simultaneously devolve at the same time. We're seeing it on display still in our broken world as we're watching a, a war wage on for over a year with first world countries fighting over God knows what, over one man's ego at times it seems. It's a broken world we live in where education and, and technology and time and resources are not the answer. We're seeing it play out in real time. Oh, if we extract Jesus, what hope is there of us even finding purpose in life? Where is there any meaning or purpose in life? If we evolved by random chance and if then we progress through survival of the fittest, if those realities are true and there is no Jesus, then we have to admit that our hearts won't allow us to live the kinds of lives the way that our minds tell us we ought. Our hearts won't allow us to live our lives the way that our minds tell us we ought. To live that way of discarding the weak to allow for societal uh, progress to take place would feel unhuman. We would call it inhumane. Our hearts betray us and betray the narrative that we're meant to believe if there is no Jesus. What hope is there if there is no Jesus? What hope is there for an afterlife? However, 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Or as Paul said it here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7, I love this. He says that you are no longer a slave. You are now a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ that we share in a future inheritance, that we belong in his family and have a place in his home in the future, that the resurrection, yes, it does provide forgiveness and power, but it also provides hope for the future. There was an old Irish poet by the name of Thomas More. He said that earth has no sorrow. Heaven cannot heal. And on an Easter Sunday morning, I'm reminded every year of that quote, that earth has no sorrow, heaven cannot heal. Because our hope for our future is rooted in a risen Savior. It's a hope that is in a secure future. It's secure because Christ, my substitute, has proven that his substitution was accepted by the Father when the Father raised him from the dead, triumphant and victorious. It's a hope that I have in my heart for a reunion with those that we've loved and lost who placed their faith in Jesus, a reunion with Jesus, the King of heaven, and with the whole of his kingdom. It's hope of, in the words of J.R. Tolkien, of everything sad becoming untrue. You see, the message of Easter is a message for all of creation that God will make things beautiful and right again in his time. But it's also not just a message to all of creation. It's a message to each individual. A message about forgiveness for your sin. A message about power for your life to be changed and transformed. It's a message about hope that there is a wonderful future ahead of us. I want to tell you this morning that the resurrection, it changes. It can change, please hear me, your past. It can change the present and undoubtedly will change your future. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 says, but but now Christ is risen from the dead and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I've always loved the way that this is worded because the first fruits is beautiful imagery. I mean, we've had so much rain here in the last couple of months. And so we're seeing everything green and you're, you're in a moment in time on a calendar where just this week, we're beginning to see things begin to blossom. We're seeing the first signs of new life. It's like dawn after a long, dark night. It's the spring after a dark and long winter for us in San Diego with lots of rain. You see, the beautiful thing about first fruits, the first blossoms, is that they come as a sign and a promise that there's more to come, that there's new life coming. And that's what we look back at when we look towards an empty tomb with Jesus. We look at proof and a sign that there's more life, that there's new life coming. My front yard in the winter can kind of reflect Frodo's trek to Mordor to dispose of the ring of power. We have red lava rock everywhere and then dark brown mulch and we've got two dozen rose bushes that, in the winter, we chop down to just a couple of inches tall. It looks like this godforsaken, barren wasteland. It's kind of depressing when you like, walk out of your house and just feel the sadness of winter. And when you come home to your home and are also greeted, like, hey, we're still here. It makes it such a fun moment, though, when spring comes. And just this weekend, we're out as a family in our front yard and I saw the first sign of new life, the first blossom that I clipped off and saved from the real beauty and joy that it could have given to us. But in order to share it with you this morning, listen, I got three savages living rent-free in my house who probably would have torn it apart anyway, so. The thing that I love so much about, about those rose bushes is this time of year when we see the first blossom and something happens in my heart. Because this first blossom promises beauty and new life and more to come. And for me, I go, ah, it's arrived. We're done. We're turning the page. Do you understand that against the bleak backdrop, of humanity facing a holy, just, righteous God with their hands being soiled with sin and rebellion, with all of us being broken, with no way to fix it, and living in a broken world that leaves us empty and without answers, that humanity lined itself up outside of an empty tomb. where a promise of new life. Where promised that more to come, there was more to come, where, where something beautiful was seen that changed the whole narrative. You see, we look to an empty tomb today and we feel all the things that we feel when we see that winter is over and spring has arrived. Because Easter promises us new life. And that can take so many forms. That can be new life in a broken marriage today. That can be new life in an empty heart today. That can be new life breathed into a weary soul today as you respond to Jesus who says, if you're weary and heavy laden, then come to me and you'll find rest. Because it's Jesus in his own words who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. What a statement. But you might remember that Jesus statement finishes with a question where he simply says do you believe this My friends Easter isn't just something we commemorate it's not just something we celebrate but it's something that on our calendar that annually asks us the question do you believe do you believe this My friends, I encourage you today to cry out to Jesus, to begin to experience the power of the resurrection as you invite a resurrected Savior into your life afresh again. In Scripture, it says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And so Jesus, we turn your direction right now on an Easter Sunday morning and your words echo to us that you are the resurrection and the life, that those who would believe would not taste death, that though we would die, yet we shall still live. That you would be as a good shepherd who would lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, Because you would drink deep of the substance of death, we would only face a shadow. But Jesus, we know that we must answer the question, do you believe? So God, I pray for every person here, that you, by your spirit, that you'd move in their hearts. Jesus, I pray specifically for those who have never responded to you, who this Easter Sunday find themselves seated here, thinking through, is it all real? Could this be true? Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd move in their heart, knowing that you desire that none would perish. That they, Jesus, would look the direction of an empty tomb and see the promise of new life. See beauty and hope and joy, life there in an empty tomb. Jesus seeing it in you, a person. So if that's you, if you're a person who's here this morning and you don't know what you think of Jesus or you're yet to confess your deep need for him personally and to receive him, then I ask you right now in the quietness of your own heart to do what scripture says, to confess now with your mouth between you and God, telling him, you are Lord, you're in charge. It's you telling him that that I've had it wrong, but you have it right. It's you saying that i need you to forgive me and to give me life and if you believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead he has promised that you will be saved and in this moment the gift of the resurrection can be experienced by you the gift that changes your past giving you forgiveness and and causing you to belong again in the family of god that you'd be adopted changing your present, giving you great power. For God, to move and work in your life, to heal, to, yes, to redeem, to restore, and to give you hope for a future with him. And so God, move in hearts as people would open them and just openly confess to you their need, Jesus, for you. Respond, we pray, and give new life, we pray. Jesus, we worship you, not just the suffering Savior, but the conquering King. Jesus, we thank you that today we can gather as a family, because this is a part of what you established. You gave us a place to belong in your family. And today, as your family, we celebrate what we have in you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.